everyone, welcome to the conversation. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, your sometimes host. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. Um, my first guest is a former gum, gun industry executive, not gum, gun, G-U-N, uh, and currently a senior advisor uh, with, with Gabby Giffords and author of the book Gunfight. Uh, please welcome Ryan Bussey. Hey, thanks for having me. Ryan, so good to have you here. Rarely do we get an insight from someone who actually used to be on the other side lobbying um, for the gun industry or, or working with it. Why, can I just ask you, why did you have a change of heart and why did you write your book? You know, I don't, I don't know that I had that much of a change of heart. I think like a lot of people um, the last many years, right? Something changed around me. Um, but in the early 2000s, you know, to the degree I did have a change of heart, I realized then that I was in an industry that was becoming radicalized and would eventually, you know, I feared it would turn the country into what we've had today. And so I stayed in for 15 or 16 years after that, but I did that adhering and fighting for the old responsible sort of firearms ownership that I had grown up with and that I still believe in, um, not this thing that it has grown into, something that frightens me and should frighten the country and I think is very dangerous. So. Um, you know, it it definitely has changed around me, and it has gotten a lot more radical. And and that's, yeah, and that's incredible. And I, I want to ask you what like what do you point to in terms of how this country has shifted and has changed and become so radicalized around gun ownership and the type of gun ownership and the, um, you know, the ways that people own guns, the number of guns that people own, the kinds of guns. What what do you attribute that to? Well, I posit in my book that like the whole, the entirety of our national radicalization really started with and centers on this NRAism, this all or nothingism. Um, the, the way it came about was in 1999 after Columbine, the NRA decided, you know, they had a choice: do we want to be a part of the solution? Do we want to be? Do we want to double down and use fate, you know, fear and hate to drive membership and fundraising? We know now from unearthed tapes thanks to NPR that they literally had those discussions and they chose the latter. They pulled the industry in with them. Then we had a couple of laws that changed. The assault weapons ban was not renewed by Bush. And then PLACA, the Protection Lawful Commerce and Arms Act was passed and signed by Bush in 2005. That gave a broad liability shield to gun companies. And then we had the rise of our first black president in 2007 and eventually President Barack Obama won in 2008. And that's where all the kind of NRA radicalization tied in with the industry needing a symbol and a, and a center of profit, the AR-15, and that's where it took off. And so if you look at our gun sales and radicalization starting, in, it was pretty much flat up until about 2007. Since then it's taken off and that's that's the same graph that our national radicalization has followed. Wow, right, so very much race-based as a lot of rhetoric was when Barack Obama rose to power and eventually was elected. Um, and, and being on the inside at that time, what was the discussion? You know, like what was it? Oh yeah, like we're we're selling these things like hotcakes. Uh, I'm not sure, obviously, um, which which specific company you worked for or if it produced the AR-15. But no. was there sort of a sense of yeah? What was that like internally? So I never uh, produced. I never. I've never owned an AR-15. Never sold them. Never would. I, you know, I held to my own my own principles of responsible gun ownership. But you know, to give you an idea, every single person in the industry that I knew, and I knew a lot of them, um, they referred to Barack Obama as the best gun salesman in America, right? That was his nickname. Nobody called him Barack Obama, they called him the best gun salesman in America because the sort of 
racist hyperbole, the sort of fear that was built up in or by the NRA in and around Obama's presidency and the conspiracies that were, you know, let across the country. Right to me, the the forerunners to QAnon, um, they were. It was all this racial undertone, and you know, it was frightening. Um, and at the same time, it was driving sales like no one had ever seen before. President Obama took office. Um, the country had never purchased more than about seven seven and a half million guns in a single year ever. Um, by the time he left office, that the country was purchasing more than sixteen and a half million a year. My God, and and yet that still seems like it wasn't enough. I mean, the NRA and <laughs> and gun lobbyists and manufacturers didn't were like, well, this is good. It's sort of like you know the golden goose. Let's keep yeah, going it's, here. It's gotten um, more. Yeah, can I just ask you, has there been any sort of similar reckoning to the one you have of like, hey man, like what's going on around us? This is this is an irresponsible industry. I mean, I would call it that. Um, or is that is it just kind of like let's move forward and hope that your child is not next in a you know mass shooting in a school? Yeah, it's really rationalized like that, and it's gotten a lot worse. And I tell people, you know, you should be frightened about what is to come, the sort of stuff that is marketed now. If you think about the worst, most tumultuous time that any of us have ever lived through, um, January 1, 2020 to January 7th, 2021, we had COVID shutdowns, George Floyd protests, counter protests, um, troops in the streets, people getting shot. I mean, I, I, you know, Trump pouring fuel on all of it. Uh, and that corresponds to perfectly to the highest gun sales ever in the history of America by a long shot. That was there were 25 million guns sold in that 12 month period. Damn. And so you have an industry that is both fueling and profiting off of that sort of hatred and fear. And when you have a profit motive to that, like you want more of it, right? And so now you see there's a gun marketed called the Urban Super Sniper. It's an AR-15. I mean, excuse me, but I don't have to use a lot of you know, I don't have to use a lot of imagination to know what an urban super sniper is for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you see this just ratcheting up the sort of uh, tactical gear that the Buffalo shooter wore. Um, he writes in his manifesto about shopping through all the marketing campaigns. Um, those that, that sort of gear was not even allowed in the industry trade shows 15 years ago, right? Back to the time I started to fight against it and basically saying, don't do this, it's dangerous. Um, and and this, the marketing campaigns now are like a mix of Softcore porn and hardcore politics, and I mean conspiracy theory, and like don't go on online; it'll like it'll ruin you forever. And look at it, but it it's no wonder that troubled 18, 19 year old kids buy these guns and this tactical gear and do these things, right? The marketing's telling them to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, usually when you speak to a responsible gun owner, someone who does own guns, and um, you, they're always fighting people who want gun safety. They're never fighting. Um, against some of the more radical elements of gun ownership and the NRA as you yourself are doing. So I think that's very fascinating. Um, and I just wanna ask like, what to you, especially now, like what are some concrete steps? Um, and I guess I am curious as to your take on this bipartisan legislation, which is very minor, but I guess considering we haven't done anything on gun safety and control in 30 years, significant um, that was recently passed in the Senate. But but what do you think about the Senate bill? And then what do you what do you as a responsible gun ownership? What does that look like to you? And what does that mean? Well, I think the Senate bill, you know, is a series of good first steps. Um, we didn't get into this problem with one big 
decision or action. We're not going to get out with one simple decision or action. I think that I think that Senate bill starts to kind of reframe the norms of decency and responsibility that the industry knew to adhere to, much like our political system, right? There was a time when sitting members of Congress didn't tweet out pictures or, or memes of them killing other sitting members of Congress, right? It wasn't that long ago. There were there were norms we didn't cross. Same thing in the firearms industry. We have to figure out a way to get back there. And I think that um, laws and regulations like the ones that, that, that the Senate just passed and the House just passed today, um, they go a long ways towards codifying those social norms. We need more of that. We have to mm-hmm. start making the world you know, marginally better instead of making it worse. Um, and I think we have to figure out a way. There's a few other things like you know, armed intimidation, open carry armed intimidation. This idea that you know, men can march into the Michigan Capitol with loaded AR-15s, that's democracy cannot function that way. We have to figure out a way to outlaw that. That has to go away. Um, I'm, worried, I'm worried that it's gonna undo democracy if we don't. Yeah. Yeah, and you see the Supreme Court, you know, sort of overruling New York State's right to not have open carry, right? And effectively, there's an overreach there. There's no states' rights there when it comes to abortion rights, tons of states' rights, whatever the hell that means. There's been a theory that the NRA is no longer relevant because the base has been so radicalized around guns that even things like Wayne LaPierre's massive corruption means nothing and the NRA is kind of just, it's useless. Um, What do you think about that? And then what do you think about how do you change that gun culture? Is it guys like you showing off how they, you know, are safe gun owners and sort of reframing God country manliness around that type of archetype? Well, I think your point about LaPierre and the NRA, I think is partially correct. I don't think, I think the stories of the demise of the NRA are vastly overstated. However, your point about the radicalization is a good one because what difference does it make now, right? They put the virus in the system, mm-hmm. much like Trump and Trumpism. Like it hasn't, Trump is not elected, he's not the president, yet Trumpism still kind of rules our everyday lives. Um, and it's it's very much the same way. And so the NRA has radicalized that base and they're not gonna go away. But even if they did go away 100% tomorrow, I don't think the political, I don't think the political calculus would change all that much for a long time. So I think I think you're right about that. Mm-hmm. How do we change it? I think that yeah, decent people have to stand up and say, you know, this isn't okay. And so many people since I've written my book have reached out to me and you know, thank you for saying this, thank you for doing this. I know there's millions of them out there, but we have to knock the mic out of people's hands and we have to understand how we got here, right? That this NRAism is so wrapped up into our politics. The reason we can't pass a background check bill that polls at 82%, like nothing polls at 82%, background checks do. We can't pass it, why? Because NRAism is so wound through the DNA of the Republican Party. Like you're you're attacking something much larger than just that simple policy thing. And I think um, that's why everything that we care about, reproductive rights, which is a huge deal obviously right now, um, all of this stuff is wound up in that all or nothing politics of the NRA and we need to understand how we got here. Is it also about getting gun lobby money out of politics? I think money is important, but I think the the role of money has been vastly overstated too. The real power of these you know, culture war organizations like the NRA is the fact that they make single issue voters out of several million people so they can sway key races by a percent or two and, and you know, in tough elections, they they make a difference. Um, yes, money has plays a part in that, but it's what what the 
you know, what senators and Congress people, what they really fear are those is that radicalized base. Think of it, same exact thing with Trump. Like, yes, there's money involved, but what, what the GOP really fears is that radicalized base, them being trolled, them going home to their districts and getting, you know, crazy members or crazy constituents showing up with pickets. You know, like it's the base that they fear. And that's the same, and that all started with the NRA. Right, the base that they created, um, the monster, yeah. afraid of their yeah. Frankenstein. Uh, Ryan yeah. Bussey, we've got to leave it there. Such a great, uh, I'm fascinated by this. I hope everyone gets your book. Uh, Gunfight is the name of his book. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the conversation, Francesca Fiorentini here. And my next guest is a contributing writer to The Intercept, done a lot of great political reporting about this midterm elections and others. Please welcome Austin Allman. Austin, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me, I appreciate it. So I wanna turn to you to explain what the hell is going on in New York State? Um, I think some people who are in and out of New York State know there was major redistricting that uh, drew new lines, um, pitted politicians, current and former, um, mostly current against one another, um, drawing them into the same district. And, and and there's a lack of clarity as to why this happened and what does it mean. Um, so I wanted, and we know that the New York primaries are coming up. So just can you explain how New York got into this moment that it's in with this redistricting kind of cluster F word? Sure, so um, I mean, the, the best way to think about it is that this is sort of the last lap of uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo. So the what had happened was that Democrats had hoped to to gerrymander New York, to be quite frank, I and mean, gerrymandered it very egregiously, um, kind of as retaliation for things that have happened in Texas and Florida, et cetera, to hope hopefully you know all together even out the map a little bit. What happened was unex very unexpectedly, the Democratic-controlled Supreme Court struck down that gerrymander, and they did it so late in the game that it just caused this massive shuffle. Um, and at the time, six of the seven justices on the court had been appointed by Andrew Cuomo, and who's you know at odds with a lot of the members of the, the party. And he had even appointed some Republicans, but they were mostly Republicans, moderate Democrats who were unhappy with what the legislature had done in forcing Cuomo out. And uh, it affected the state legislature too, not just the House of Representatives on the national level. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it really was sort of the last laugh of Andrew Cuomo in a, in a really disturbing way. But it set off this just massive unexpected battle as these lines came out, you know, in the dead of night, right in the middle of primary season. Um, everybody had to ramp up for their primaries in a matter of weeks, and it was just a mess. <laughs> I love that you're explaining that is, yeah, it's this like beyond the grave. Um, sort of I mean for he is a democrat but he worked a lot with republicans and kind of relied on them to prevent any real progressive change happening in new york can i ask you though like just sort of on an objective level as much as you can do you feel like there it was gerrymandered that it was sort of unfair to say the the fewer but the republican voter voters in new york Sure. I mean, as far as the, the map was very egregiously gerrymandered. Um, I think it was the Republicans were going, only going to have, I think, four of the uh, almost 30 seats that New York holds um, tilt their direction, which is insane in a way, right? I mean, the, New York is very Democratic, but about a third of the voters are still Republican, and they were not going to have anywhere close to a third of the seats. 
Uh, so it really was a very gendered map. Okay, okay. So now let's talk about who lost out when in this new map that actually just tell me. So this map was drawn by a guy named Jonathan Service. Um, who the hell is this guy? Why was he the one redrawing the map? Usually it's like the legislature does it. This was farmed out to a map guy. So he was the called the special master. Um, he's he's not necessarily a, a bad dude. He's very moderate. There's no really reason to think that he drew the lines in a way that's unfair per se. But he was appointed to draw the lines in conjunction with the court um, and with the input of like relevant parties. They could file you know briefs, whatever to to have their little bit of say. But really, it came down to his opinion. Uh, and the maps that he drew, they're they're not necessarily unfair. Uh, and I think it would be a little bit inaccurate to say that they're unfair um, as far as you know partisan balance and things like that go. But it just caused a mess uh, mm. because nobody knew until the eleventh hour where they were going to run, and nobody knew what the what the considerations were in the drawing of these maps because he had all the power, and really it was his say, and really nobody else had much much input um, that was very much valued. Right, 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 right. So everyone's scrambling, and again, like I mentioned, there's it's centrist versus centrist, progressive versus progressive. Um, one of the districts uh, pits Carol Maloney and Jerry Nadler to sitting representatives who've been in office for many, many years uh, against one another. Neither of those two candidates are backing down, it seems. Um, but I want to actually, I'm, I'm interested in in Mondaire Jones and who, you know, sort of new member of the squad. This is this is congressional district number 17. Um, you know, uh, openly gay, African American, progressive, and what is going on in District 17, and who, what is Sean Patrick Mahoney doing in that same district that actually has been forcing Mondaire Jones out? So what happened was both of their homes ended up getting put in the same district. So even though most of the district that Sean Patrick Mahoney moved into was previously represented by Jones. He said that his home was there and Jones's home actually ended up just outside the district. And so if you go based off of who actually lives in the district, right. there's something to be said for having a claim there. But usually members of Congress defer to who actually represented the seat, who represented most of those constituents previously. Um, and so kind of right after the maps drop, Maloney decided to announce without even coordinating or speaking with Jones at all. And in fact, Jones tweeted about this and said, Sean Patrick Maloney didn't even give me a call before he announced for the seat that I currently represent, which tells you everything you need to know about him. Um, and this was a big deal, right? This is the DCCC chair. He's in charge with, of protecting the majority. And what happened is on Sean Patrick Maloney's seat, it got more red leaning um, as a result of the redistricting and the maps, frankly, getting a bit more fair. Um, and what I've understood, and our, my colleague Ryan Grimm has done some great reporting on this, is that Sean Patrick Maloney saw some polling that said that he was in trouble. And instead of thinking that, that he needed to do his job better as DCCC chair, he thought that, well, best to get off the sinking ship while I can, hop to Jones's district, which is a bit more favorable, and hope to force him into a primary uh, with Jamal Bowman, who has a district just south of his. Wow. So. Basically forcing uh, Mondaire Jones to either run against Jamal Bowman or run against him, the head of the DCCC. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and so he had been prodded on. David Friedlander has some great reporting on this um, that Mondaire Jones, even before the maps became finalized, was getting pressure from senior House Democrats to run against Jamal Bowman anyway. Um, I'm guessing because the calculation is no matter who wins, 
you know, the moderates in Congress win, right? There's one <laughs> fewer progressive member of Congress from New York, no matter what. Um, and so Mondeo Jones, sort of to his credit, sort of because, you know, there's rumor that he saw polling showing that Joe Bowman was going to beat him pretty handily. He just jumped ship altogether and is now running in Manhattan in the 10th district, which is nowhere near his current district, um, but was one of the few open seats on the map because so with so many Democratic seats eliminated after after the uh, new round of redistricting, there weren't really many open seats to be had, but almost all of them had an incumbent or multiple incumbents. That's crazy. That's crazy to me. And meanwhile, and, and Maloney's in, and because he's also like, I can't go against Maloney either. Well, so we're talking about Jones. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, uh, there's two Maloney's, I get a little confused. Oh yeah, Mo- uh, so Sean Patrick, Sean Patrick, not Carol, yeah. The calculation there was one, there was gonna be a ton of outside spending. Uh, Sean Patrick Maloney is the DCCC chair. He has good relationships with all of the outside groups that are spending. There was fear that you know the, the super PACs, especially the pro-Israel ones that have been just dumping money into these races, that they would have spent in that race. And then even if he had won, that seat's also um, a, a swing district and is trending right. So he would have had this bloody primary and then would have had to turn around after defeating a member that was more moderate and try to win in the general. Mm. Um, so he had a, a, a tough calculation to make there and there were no good options. But the one that he, he picked is also not great. Insane, this is insane. The final thing on New York and then I wanna move on. Um, so the 10th district where Jones is running it also Bill de Blasio, former mayor, is running in, as well as a current assemblywoman, Yulene Noy. Thoughts on that? Um, does it feel like de Blasio name recognition will will trump? So there already has been a poll of the race, which funnily enough shows that none of the voters know or like any of the candidates. Everybody's in single digits. The former mayor, Bill de Blasio, single digits. <laughs> uh, Mondaire Jones, also single digits. Um, I think that de Blasio, frankly, is not going to be much of a factor. If it, with his name recognition where it is, if he's already pulling that low, I'm not sure what you're going to end up doing. Uh, I think that Yulene Neo could end up being a surprise. She's already starting to get some of the progressive endorsements in that race, which you would think that Jones would have first, first crack at. The Working Families Party endorsed her last week. Um, and so really, it's going to be a progressive versus a more progressive. So in a sense, that race ended up being okay. And I know you've covered some of the redistricting crap and kerfuffle, um, which has to happen, you know, from time to time, but not always so chaotically as in New York. But can you just talk about maybe Illinois, since that um, primary is coming up on Tuesday, tomorrow? Yeah, so Illinois is is a little wild too. So what happened there was the uh, Democratic uh, majorities in both chambers they gerrymandered the map. And really, they gerrymandered it to have more seats, but um, they could have drawn it to get the same number of seats that they did and kept every incumbent safe. But you know, pretty intentionally, it appears they carved up Marie Newman's district. So Marie Newman uh, um, unseated Dan Lipinski last cycle. Not a great Democrat, anti-choice, um, voted against the ACA. Not 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 exactly the type of person you want in Congress. But the rule is, if you want to seat an incumbent you're on the list, right? Mm -hmm. So they chopped her district up and gave her the choice of running against Sean Caston, who's fairly progressive himself and actually supported her run, or Chuy Garcia, who's also a very progressive um, member of a majority minority district next door. She didn't have a good calculation, both are comments that have been there longer. um, So she's running against Caston now. So in a sense, there was uh, modern Democrats kind of like carving up a progressive district, sort of knowing that they would knock one another out. 
or you, you almost can't get these lines without without there being some intentional malicious behavior towards towards Newman specifically. Um, it was it it's if you go look at the map, I encourage listeners to go look at the map. The the, the way that they draw these districts is just unbelievable, um, and it's hard to feel like it was anything other than intentional. It's interesting to hear about um, Republican Jerry, I mean, Democratic gerrymandering for the first time. Any final thoughts on how you think this should be done generally? I mean, I, I do believe that independent commissions are good. Um, I do believe that in general, um, there, there's instances where it can go both ways. So in Oregon, for example, or the new gerrymandered maps actually benefited progressives because the state house uh, Democrats are a little bit more progressive there. But even that isn't great, you know. Like I, I'm a big believer that we can go on offense while there's the ability to go on offense as a Democratic Party to, you know, bolster progressives and whatnot. But in general, progressives are going to lose when Democrats go on the offense most of the time in, in, uh, in gerrymandering. Right, because it'll swing the other way. So maybe just leave it to I don't know, random map dudes like Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe voters should pick their politicians and not the other way around. Absolutely. Um, Austin Allman, everyone check out his work for The Intercept. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, it's been a pleasure.